You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to the study of John's Gospel. I am Father Turo. I am stationed at Seton Hall Seminary in New Jersey. I do teach in Connecticut at the Cromwell Seminary, Holy Apostles. And uh, the thing that I most of all would like to get across is that I am enthusiastic about the study of Scripture, and I hope that that is contagious, that you will catch fire as a result of what we have to consider here. John's Gospel, of course, is quite an assignment. It's a very profound and vast study, and of course there's no thought of within the compass of a single course of doing full justice to it. We're going to have to just do bits and pieces of it and hope all the while that enough of the character, the essence of the Gospel comes through from the limited treatment that we'll be able to afford to give it. The Gospels, or rather, let me say, the New Testament, comes into existence, as it seems, in answer to the needs of the people back at the time when it began to be written. At first, the Christians were very much taken by the fact of the resurrection. They would be dazzled by it. And when you stop to think about it, why shouldn't they have been? Here, it was a question of having known this person, seen him dead, limp on the cross, then subsequently seeing him alive again, quite alive. This was not a phantasm, not a ghost, nothing insubstantial. It was really the same person who had died on the cross, now alive again. Well, you can understand how this would become a kind of an obsession for these people. This is all they could think about, it's all they could talk about back in those early years of Christianity. Well, as the New Testament comes into existence, it sort of answers the need of the, these people. It corresponds to their enthusiasms. So if at the beginning they are so taken with the resurrection, you find that the first part of the New Testament deals precisely with that, with the resurrection. And the first part of the New Testament are the epistles. This comes as a surprise to many, because we're usually in the habit of working our way through the New Testament, starting with Matthew, going on to Mark, Luke, and John, and eventually getting to the epistles. But just the reverse in chronology. The epistles were first produced and then only subsequently the Gospels. The earliest bit of New Testament material we have dates from the year 51 AD. The Gospels don't come into existence until a later decade. But the thing that I want to put across now is that these epistles concentrate on that fact that looms so large in the consciousness of the early Christians, the fact of the resurrection. And so the uh, epistles speak to us not only about the fact, but about the implications, the consequences of that fact. And uh, the people were happy enough to find material that discussed 
all these tangents, these aspects of the resurrection. But with the passage of time, an interesting thing happens, but quite understandable again. The people are still very much taken by the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead and is alive again. But now they're consumed with the desire to grasp more and more of the details of the story of Jesus. Where was it that Jesus cured Peter's mother-in-law? Well, that was in Capernaum at Peter's house. Who was it that came and emptied a small box of perfume over Jesus? These little incidentals, you might almost call them incidental features, become fascinating for the people. And so the Gospels were conceived of for, among other reasons, to satisfy, you might say, the people of those times, curiosity, their desire to know more and more, even small, seemingly insignificant facets of the story of Christ. So the Gospels come into existence with that thrust. Now, of all the Gospels, the one that we have in hand, John's Gospel, is arguably the most beloved, the gospel that Christians respond to more readily. People say that that's because they find it to be so spiritual. All the gospels have a spiritual dimension to them, but this perhaps has more. I say that for this reason. It isn't satisfied. The the writer of this gospel was not satisfied just to indicate the significance of a particular thing that happens in the story of Jesus. It underscores that significance more than it would seem the other Gospels do. But for whatever reason, it is perhaps the best known and the the most loved of all the Gospels. It certainly is in its construction the simplest, and yet in, in some respects the most profound book of the New Testament. It mixes history and interpretation, biography and theology, all are blended together to project on the consciousness of the reader, the Jesus of history, in the light of Christian experience. I might say this, that it's perhaps for that reason eminently useful and enriching. Useful by that I mean to suggest that it can be a very great help to someone who is going to be teaching Christian doctrine caught up in the catechetical program of some parish, you'll find this gospel to be a mine of information, but enriching because just a quiet reading of it does so much for the individual person, for the individual soul. So it is an outstanding gospel. A good long while ago, the Christian community worked out symbols for the various gospels. So, for instance, The lion is the symbol for Mark's gospel. The eagle is the symbol for John's gospel. For a clear enough reason, the eagle soars. And when one soars above a landscape, one gets a very good comprehensive impression, view of that whole landscape. You know, it's much like someone has lived on the island of Manhattan one's whole life but then, later on in life, for the first time, flies over on a flight to Chicago. And for the first time, that person who's so familiar with this venue now gets an impression of its outline, of its silhouette. 
Well, you know, if you soar as an eagle soars, that's what you see down below. Well, that would have been one reason why, surely, the people back centuries ago thought of the eagle as best symbolizing this gospel because it gives us that sense of the shape of the phenomenon that is Christ, a sense of the shape of his teaching as well. But there probably was another reason as well why they chose the eagle to symbolize this gospel. And that reason would have been this. In those days, rightly or wrongly, I'm unable to say, people had the idea that the eagle was the only animal that could look directly into the sun and not flinch. And that struck somebody as how very appropriate for this gospel, because this gospel does something like that, looks directly into the sun, the divinity of Jesus, and does not back off, does not blink. Just think of the way the gospel begins with a resounding affirmation of the divinity of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then all throughout the gospel, the same thing comes back for consideration over and again, the divinity of Jesus. It concludes pretty much on that note. Toward the end of the gospel, we hear Thomas say to Jesus, the risen Jesus, my Lord and my God. So it does make much of the divinity of Jesus. It's thought that the reason it, it has that particular accent, to be sure all of the Gospels note the fact of Jesus' divinity, there's no question about that, but the extra added emphasis that's put on that fact here in this Gospel is thought to be explained in part in this way. The community, the Christian community out of which this Gospel originated was probably a community in the city of Jerusalem. Now, bear in mind that at this early period, all the Christians were Jews. Top that for a remarkable statement, the ultimate oxymoron. But that was the fact. All the Christians in that first generation were Jews, including this particular community here in Jerusalem, the Johannine community very much influenced by John. Well, within that community, maybe it wasn't a difference of opinion as much as a difference of approach made itself felt. Some people in that community, while in no way doubting the divinity of Jesus, were just being quiet about it for fear that this would have terrible consequences for them. After all, they were living as all other Jews lived. They followed the same spiritual devotional life that the other Jews did. They continued to go to the temple. They continued to go to the synagogues on Saturday. So that this segment of that Johannine community was in fear of being castigated in some way if they spoke too loudly about the divinity of Jesus. On the other hand, the other part of the same community was for just speaking out the truth, come hell or high water, taking whatever consequences that might follow from that. And it's from that segment that this gospel originates with this particular orientation, strong in its assertion of the divinity 
of Christ. Some people speak of this as the different gospel, and what they mean to put across by that is that there are any number of instances in the life of Christ that don't come up for consideration in this gospel at all. For instance, Jesus' birth, his birth here on earth, whereas Matthew and Luke, for instance, have so much to say about Jesus born in Bethlehem, the shepherds coming, and all the rest, and the early years of Jesus on earth. Not this gospel, the reason being that it is so fixed on the fact of Jesus' God dimension, the fact that he is God, and as God uh, is from forever. And says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God. So that's, if you're going to talk about the beginning of Jesus, that's the way you have to speak about it in the minds of these people. But in any case, for whatever reason, they included very little about Jesus' early years. Okay. But then other things as well get sort of short shrift in this gospel. So, for instance, the baptism of Jesus is just mentioned. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, but it isn't described, recounted in the way that it is in the other Gospels. This Gospel also has nothing about the temptations that Jesus experienced. It says very little about the Last Supper. What are we to make of all this? Well, nothing of any great significance. We mustn't foolishly suppose that the reason this gospel doesn't make any mention of these things is because the author of the gospel was unaware of this information. No, no need to take that point of view. But there were other ideas, other notions, other facets of Jesus that the author felt had to be emphasized, had to be brought to the surface. And there's only just so much that you can discuss within the compass of a particular gospel. Remember, a great physical controlling feature about the length of the gospels were the scrolls on which the gospel was written. So it just couldn't run on indefinitely. You had to make a selection of choosing this and omitting that. And that's what the author of this gospel did, just as the author of the other gospels did, proceeded along the very same lines. They chose out those instances, those in the story of Jesus and those teachings of Jesus that would hit home with the congregation that the particular gospel writer was aiming at. The controlling feature about what gets into a gospel and does not get into it was just that. The needs of a particular Christian congregation, which were understood by the gospel writer and accommodated accordingly by bringing forward for that congregation aspects of the story of Jesus, these people would find helpful. So that's the way to deal with the diversity that you find in the Gospels. Actually, it's a diversity created, yes, by the needs of the congregations for which the Gospels were destined, but also by a different viewpoint, a different angle of vision was assumed by the different Gospel writers. And just as one could, in a particular room, describe the room from one end, and the description, you know, would be valid for that part of the room that was being considered, but somebody else might take his position at another place in the room, a side of the room, that the original person didn't have in view at all. And if you saw the two separate descriptions, 
you could think, is this the same room? And indeed it is, but viewed from a different angle. So that's the way to come to grips, I think, with the variety that you find, the diversity among the Gospels. Some people didn't rest easy with that in the early years of Christianity. You had a man by the name of Tatian who thought, why read these four accounts? Why not conflate them into one account? And he proceeded to do just that. So it would go this way, that everything that is found in all four Gospels would turn up in this now compressed version that he came up with. So, for example, all four Gospels recount the multiplication of loaves and fishes. And in this book that Tatian wrote, it would have just one account, just one instance of the multiplication of loaves and fishes. But it happens that the Gospel of John mentions a detail that the other three Gospels don't mention, namely that the loaves that were multiplied were barley loaves. And so includes that in his account. And in the end, he comes up with this new work based on all four Gospels containing all the information found in all four taken together. And uh, he called that the diatessaron, which is Greek for one through four, at one work composed of four. It's still available, as a matter of fact, and it's a perfectly legitimate book But I think the concern or the point of view that brought it into existence is not as enlightened as one that I'm offering you, that namely there is an absolute advantage in having four presentations of the story of Jesus, as you have in the four Gospels, than to have just a single one. For one thing, you're seeing different profiles of Christ, you might say that taken together give us more of Christ than we would otherwise have. But so much about the different gospel. Sometimes this fourth gospel is also called the gospel of special knowledge. And what people tend to say by that is that you find in this gospel incidents, accounts that are not to be found in any of the other gospels. So, for example, this is the only gospel that speaks to us about the miracle at Cana. This is the only gospel that tells us about Nicodemus' visit, which is actually very precious. There's much to be learned from that consultation of Nicodemus comes to consult with Jesus. And then Jesus' dialogue with the Samaritan woman. That too is precious to us, but found only in this gospel. The raising of Lazarus is another instance of uh, just a solitary instance of it, namely in this fourth gospel, and the washing of the feet of the disciples, recounted only here. So, all this to familiarize you in a general way with this gospel that we have in hand and that we're going to analyze in greater detail. One further thing before letting go of this comprehensive view of the gospel, the author of this gospel had an eye for detail, and that's fascinating and pleasant for us, I think, in the long run. There are people like that. They experience a scene or a happening in that way. All the little facets of it are clear in their mind. You know, what the weather was like at that moment, what time of day it was, who was around to see this, and on and on. And the author of this gospel seems to be that kind of person. 
details are given even when they don't have any special significance, even when they don't have a part to play in the way you construe the incident. But let me give you some examples. I've already mentioned that in John's account of the multiplication of loaves and fishes, he mentions that the loaves that were multiplied were barley loaves. Now, that's not really essential for us to know. The miracle is in the multiplication, whether the loaves were, you know, whole wheat, rye, seven grain, or whatever kind of bread. That's incidental. That's a detail. The big fact is that they were multiplied but yet he puts it in. And why? Because that was the fact. They were mostly barley loaves. Our appreciation of the incident is enriched somewhat by the fact that we know from other sources that this was the bread of the poor. The poor could only afford barley. Only the wealthier people could have afforded grain for normal bread. So this is then indicating to us that most of the people in attendance on that occasion were poor, since this was their diet, barley bread. Well, that's one instance. Another instance of details that are offered us is in the account of the calming of the storm at sea. Now, again, all four Gospels bring that to our attention, but this is the only one that tells us that the disciples had rowed about three or four miles out onto this lake of Gennesaret when the storm came up. Well, that makes it clear in our minds that it was probably right about the middle of the lake because to this day, you can measure the lake, and we have measured it. It's eight miles across, 12 miles long. But it's not a vital bit of information. The miracle was in the calming of the storm and whether that took place when the disciples were 50 yards out on the lake or four miles out on the lake. But here it's given as a feature of this happening. Another example of the detail that catches this man's eye, we're told that there were six stone water jars at Cana, water that Jesus changes into wine. Once again, the number six and the construction the material of the jugs is unimportant to us, whether it was clay or stone. The miracle is in the changing of water into wine. And whether it was a glass full of water that was changed into wine or six stone water jars of water that was changed into wine is of small consequence, of no consequence even. Another instance of this, when two disciples of John the Baptist leave the band of disciples that grown up around John the Baptist and went to be with Jesus. This is recounted in the first chapter of the Gospel. They go to meet with Jesus and they converse with him. And at the conclusion, we're told it was about four in the afternoon. And once again, you know, it's a detail that's not at all essential but it's there, and very likely there, because indeed it was four in the afternoon when that conversation was held. Then there's one with a detail that I enjoy reading because it brings to mind a beautiful and very pleasant happening. It is in the account of the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary, who comes in with an alabaster box of perfume. It's here in 
chapter 12, verse 3. And Mary took a pound of liquid spikenard perfume, very costly, and poured it on Jesus' feet, then wiped his feet with her hair, and the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So there's that little detail of perfume was so strong that it suffused itself throughout the whole house. Of course, that may lead people to wonder how it must have been awfully powerful perfume to do that, but when you consider that houses in those days were not as capacious as they are today, that a house would just have been a single room of very modest dimensions, you could see how this would happen, how the strong fragrance would permeate the whole atmosphere. All right, then, all this, then, said in general about the gospel. Now we have to get down to specifics. As I said earlier on, there's no thought of going through the entire gospel, 21 chapters, because what we'd end up doing was being very superficial, making some brief comment about chapter 1, and then chapter 2, and chapter 3, and so on. That's hardly worthwhile. I think it would be a wiser approach if we limited our study to a small section, but do it in depth. So rather than run through the entire gospel, to set aside the opening chapters and deal with them. And that's the way I'm going to proceed. Now, I'm not going to start, though, with the opening verses, which are part of the famous prologue of this gospel. This prologue is really a masterpiece of literary composition for a couple of reasons, but one of them being that it is so profound in the message that it conveys, and yet so plain spoken. The words, ordinary words that a child in grammar school could grasp, and yet it's putting across just mind-boggling concepts about Jesus. The famous scripture scholar, uh, Rudolf Bultmann, Uh, made this comment, which is very much on the mark, about this prologue. He said, this prologue is like a table of contents for the rest of the gospel, and it is that. What is hinted at, or briefly stated in this part of the gospel, subsequently will turn up and get an expanded treatment. I'd rather speak of it as more like the overture to an act of an opera, where you're made to hear the themes that subsequently will surface in the next act, and that's just what you have here. But in any case, in light of that, Boltman saying that this presents us in advance with what we're going to encounter later on, he feels that it really registers on the reader most and best when read after you've gone through the gospel. Then you can come back here and catch these very concise phrases and see the depth of meaning that each of them has. Well, be that as it may, I thought I would start just after this prologue and start with the account of the story of Jesus as it's given here. So uh, I'm going to proceed in this fashion. I'll take a segment of the gospel, read that through, and then go back and comment on the ideas and maybe the vocabulary in some instances that calls for some uh, clarification. So the first of these 
passages that occurs here. It's the, actually the opening of the story of Jesus that the gospel is going to present. And it starts on the same note that all the other gospels start their account of Jesus' life and work. It starts with the testimony of John the Baptist. John the Baptist ought to be construed as kind of the MC that comes on front and center to introduce the main act. It sounds blasphemous to put it that way, but that gives you some idea of how the Gospels start up. Always with the ministry of John the Baptist, which ministry is predominantly this, to introduce Christ. So that's what we have here. Note also, too, that at this point in the Gospel, the author is using this device. He's speaking of successive days. Now that's very helpful for the reader because when you do that the clarity of the account is heightened. If, for example, you're trying to recall a vacation that you had not long ago and you say, well, on, on Monday we were at such and such a place, then Tuesday we moved on to this next place and so on and so on. It's clearer in your mind if you see it in terms of the days that are involved. But also, to arrange the account in this way, in terms of successive days, does this as well. It gives you a sense of something progressing, something growing. The first day, you're at this point. The second day, it has somewhat enlarged this happening. And then a third day, and so on. Well, be that as it may, that's how the author of the Gospel has arranged this opening part of the Gospel. Now, I'm going to read the section we're going to subject to, like, intense examination. And it begins in verse 19 of chapter 1, and we'll go to verse 28. I'm going to read it through first, and then go back and call up for special analysis different words and phrases. Now, this is the testimony that John gave when the Jews sent priests and Levites to him from Jerusalem to ask him who he was. He admitted he made no attempt to deny it. He admitted that he was not the Christ. Then they asked him, What are you then? Are you Elijah? He said, No, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? We must have some answer to give those who sent us here. What have you to say for yourself? He said, I'm a voice of one shouting, In the desert straighten the Lord's way as the prophet Isaiah said. Now the messengers were Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing people if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I am only baptizing in water, John answered, but someone is standing among you, of whom you do not know. He is to come after me. I am not worthy to undo his shoe." This took place at Bethany on the farther side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. All right, so that's what we're taking in hand. And now to go back over it with a fine comb to consider the different words and phrases. Well, the first thing that I have to say uh, here in speaking about this is the testimony that John gave that's the phrase I want to highlight, and for this reason, that you mustn't imagine that this is just a casual wayside little chat 
that John was having with these people. This is a very formal happening. It's a court trial that's going on. The prosecutors have been officially deputed to come up and interrogate John the Baptist. It's not that they happen to bump into him and get talking and say, by the way, this, this, and this. No, they are sent up for the specific reason of questioning John the Baptist about his intents and purposes. And that's what you have here. So this is not just a casual little conversation. Be very clear in your minds about that. Well, notice then that what is happening in the course of this interrogation is John the Baptist is testifying to Jesus. It's interesting to note that all four Gospels start on that note. When they start their account of the public life of Jesus, this is the note they sound. John comes along and testifies to Jesus. And here he's doing that in a very official circumstance. He's under pressure to give answers that have to be brought back to headquarters. So, in any case then, we're at great pains to make sure you understand the official character of this questioning and of this testimony that we find here. Some people have taken their cue from this, some scholars, and prefer to think of this gospel as the great trial. It starts on that note, but all through this gospel, Jesus is going to be, here it's his precursor, John the Baptist, but when Jesus comes into focus here, it is he that will be testifying, testifying first of all to God's will, testifying to right and wrong, and that's the character of this gospel. And of course then, the opposition to Jesus will form up, and it's an official opposition. And actually, you know, what brings about the death of Jesus is a very, very formal trial before Pilate, before the high priest. All right, so that's the way this particular segment of the gospel starts off on this note. Now, notice that it says, this was a testimony that John gave when the Jews sent priests and Levites to him from Jerusalem. This next thing that I have to comment on will seem odd, but it is a fact, and it's this. In this gospel, the term, the Jews, does not designate a whole population, a whole ethnic or religious group, as it does with us. When we speak of the Jews, uh, we're just speaking of a religious grouping, a religious entity, the Jews, the Catholics, the Lutherans, or sometimes we use it in an ethnic sense, so the Jews, the Germans, the English. Well, that's not the way it's used here. It actually is used in this gospel, for the most part, to designate those elements of the population that were antagonistic to Christ. When the author of this gospel has to refer to that whole grouping that we would call the Jews, it will speak of Israel or the Israelites, but reserves that word, the Jews, to those persons in the community who were inimical to Christ. The question is raised sometimes about the anti-Semitic cast of this gospel, 
And sometimes this is pointed out that, you know, the Jews appear in a bad light throughout here. But remember that it's not an indictment of the whole group, but a reference to those elements in the population that were opposed to Jesus. So it's not a general thing, as one might say, you know, the whole group is being criticized. That's one thing. Another thing to realize is that this originates from a Jewish background. And, you know, is it possible for a Jew to be anti-Semitic? Usually one thinks of that in terms of outsiders venting their whatever displeasure or prejudice on the Jews. That's being anti-Semitic, but this is from within the family, so to speak. Think of the prophets. They are very strong in condemnation of their contemporaries who were Jews, but the prophets themselves were Jews, and so no one is tempted to think of them as anti-Semitic. All right, so much for that. We're told that these men who come up from uh, Jerusalem were sent to ask who he was. First of all, this sent to ask, I get back to something I've already brought to your attention, and that is that this is already planned out. This is official. It's not a casual meeting of these people with John the Baptist. This is all ordered and determined by the authorities. Again, to come back to the idea of the official character of all of this and how serious this was in the minds of the authorities, We think of that because, first of all, they come up from Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was, uh, you know, pretty much the hub of life in those days. And uh, it was the center. You take things seriously that originate in Jerusalem. It's not a backwater place. It was the capital. So these people are from Jerusalem. Secondly, they're priests and Levites. These were important people in the community. So it's not just a casual individual that's doing this questioning. It's very, very official, solemn, you might say, priests and Levites. There's a note of irony in all of this as well, and it's this. John the Baptist would have been from the priestly clan. We know that because his father is identified as a priest. And in Luke's Gospel, His father, Zechariah, is functioning as a priest in the temple when word comes to him about the impending birth of his son. But John grows up, and he is a priest because that's what constitutes a man as a priest, and that is birth from a father who is a priest. Our concept of priest, of course, is quite different than these days. One gets ordained a priest. But among the Jews, as a matter of fact, to this day, an individual is a priest because that individual's father before him was a priest. And just as a side, I might mention that priests still exist among the Jews, though they don't function for the best of reasons. But the consciousness of a family being a priestly family has survived to this day because of the surname. So anyone bearing the Jewish surname of Cohen would be a priest because that's the Hebrew word for priest. And the reason why in synagogues Cohens do not have any function is because it is the duty of a priest to offer sacrifice. 
and sacrifice could be offered only at the temple. And the temple has been destroyed, hence priests are without a job, so to say. So much for that. The next thing I'd comment on is the word Jerusalem. As it appears here in the text, it looks like Hierosolima. That's the way one would pronounce it in Greek. That is a later form of the name of Jerusalem than originally people would have used. Originally, people would have made an effort in the Greek-speaking world to pronounce the word the way the Jews pronounced it, which is Yerushalayim. But this has more of a Greek sound to it. In any case, the conclusion that some scholars draw is that then this gospel was written at a later point in time by the time that people, Christians, had been making reference to the city of Jerusalem and calling it by its, as best they could, they could by its Hebrew name, but with time, they make the, the name a little more comfortable for themselves, the pronunciation of it, by making it sound Greek. Well, the practical conclusion one could draw from that is that that's one reason why you might think that this gospel does not go back that far in time, because this particular phenomenon would have taken place. All right. Now the next thing that I want to bring to your attention in this passage that we have under examination is this. It's in this verse, verse 20. He admitted, he made no attempt to deny it, he admitted that he was not the Christ. Okay, this is saying it very, very strongly indeed. It's at least three or four times that he is saying no. They've asked him, are you the Messiah? And he could have said just, no, I am not. But instead, we're told he admitted, number one, admitted he wasn't that. Number two, he made no attempt to deny it. No. Number three, he admitted, I am not the Christ. Three times. Now, what are we to make of that? Well, you could say just a clumsy way of speaking. He repeated himself, but no, more than likely, he's done it of set purpose. He has reinforced his denial by the threefold expression of it. He's not satisfied to say it just once. He says it three times over so that you're perfectly clear that he is not the Messiah and does not think of himself as such. He admitted, I am not the Messiah. This is in verse 20, I am not the Messiah. Here a curious thing happens in the text, in the Greek text, as you know the gospel is written originally in Greek. It puts in the word for I, the pronoun for I. Now, normally in Greek, it would not, would not have the word I for the reason that the verb indicates I. The, the verb for I am is a me, and it means I am. The word for I is a go, and the word for no, not, is ook. So normally, if someone were to ask you, are you so-and-so, you would say in Greek, ouke me, I am not, without using the special pronoun I. But here it's used, and for a good reason. When that is done in Greek, it's a way of saying, no, I'm not 
but someone here is. It's almost as if someone were to rush into the room and say, who of you parked by the fire hydrant? And I would say, I'm not the one. But I would be implying that someone in the room, as I know, someone else in the room is the guilty party. Well, we're going to let go of this at this point and take up from here the next time. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.